Hold on, hold on. Can we stop the intro real quick? Thanks, I'll just be one second. I just want to let you know before we get started that this episode, along with every other episode, is brought to you by FathomMag.com, a digital magazine that encourages Christians to go deeper in their faith. If you like this podcast, you will like what's going on at FathomMag.com. If you've been keeping up with this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can go to Fathom's pages on Instagram or Twitter at Fathom underscore Mag or on Facebook. Or you can get directly in touch with me on Instagram at DFITZ or CharlieAndyFitz on Twitter. I'd love to hear what you think, answer any questions you might have, or hear about potential ideas for new episodes. And hey, tell your friends. There's no real good way for podcasts to get out there other than word of mouth. So if you like us, let at least one other person know. Okay, back to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Christianese podcast, episode number 11. Today we're continuing the mini-series I started a little while back called In the Word, a series in which I'll walk through the stories and books of the Bible. This episode the New Testament Book of Acts. I can be pretty negative about the Christian movie industry. It seems like the only faith-based movies are feel-good, non-challenging, inoffensive, non-troubling movies. But they aren't like the stories I see in the Bible. They aren't like the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts is really the Gospel of Luke Part 2 full of astonishing characters, incredible miracles, part history, part systematic theology, and part memoir, completely inspired, revealing that the God at work in Israel in the Old Testament is the same God at work in the New Testament. And it really upends a lot of my preconceptions of who the disciples were, what ministry is, and how my own vision of what a Christian should be needs to be realigned. It's the background and context for the epistles, And it's the beginning of our story. The lights go down. The curtain goes up. And... Action. If you must blink, do it now. Pay careful attention to everything you see and hear, no matter how unusual it may seem. At the end of the Gospel of Luke... Jesus was resurrected from the dead, appeared to his disciples, and traveled throughout Israel for 40 days, teaching about the kingdom of God. One day he took his disciples about a mile outside of town to Mount Olivet. There, he says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the farthest parts of the earth. Then he ascends into heaven. Act 1. The Disciples in Jerusalem. Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip in the number four spot, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot squaring up, and Judas, son of James. There's the gun, and they're off. The disciples stay on Mount Olivet for a while, 
staring up into the sky. They don't know what to do. I can't really blame them. I don't know what I'd do if I saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And so they get together and they pray day after day. One day Peter gets up and says, Judas, our friend who we did ministry with, he was a witness with us. And without him, there's a gap. So let's find someone who can fill that gap. Someone who's followed Jesus since the beginning. And he prayed, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us who will assume this task of this service and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside. They drew lots, and his name was Matthias. You never hear his name again. Now, that becomes kind of a trend, but more on that later. So Matthias joins the disciples, now called the apostles, and they keep praying. And one day, during the Feast of Pentecost, while Jews from every surrounding area have traveled into Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Acts said they saw tongues of fire that came down and rested on each one of them, and then all of a the sudden they started speaking in languages they had not known. Now these aren't mysterious, unknown languages. These are real, actual languages. Because when the apostles go out into the streets, they start speaking to Greeks and Syrians and Ethiopians, people from all over the world, and they can understand what the apostles are saying. They're testifying about Jesus Christ. Now Peter stands up in the middle of this huge crowd and preaches this incredible sermon, showing how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, how he was crucified according to the scriptures, and then was resurrected. And his sermon ends in this way. Let the whole house of Israel know that Jesus, whom you crucified, is Lord and Christ. And the crowd is convicted that what Peter is saying is true. And so they ask, what do we do now? The same question the apostles probably had. And so Peter tells them what Jesus had told Peter. Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people were baptized that day. And these people, they become a community. They serve one another, they care for one another, they study together, they correct one another according to the scriptures, and they worship together. The church has begun. And this church, well, I like to call this the punk era. The apostles keep getting arrested. Peter and John are threatened by the high council. All of the apostles are beaten. They're just running around talking about Jesus and everyone's trying to stop them. But the church just keeps on growing. The high council is trying to do everything it can, but these apostles are taking down the law-based justification complex. The church gets so big that the apostles can't care for everybody. I mean, there's a couple thousand people in the church at this point. So under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they appoint seven deacons. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a Gentile convert from Antioch. A Gentile? There shouldn't be a Gentile here. This is a Jewish thing. 
Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. Why is it Gentile here? Are you familiar with Chekhov's gun? If in the first act you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the second act it must be fired. Otherwise, don't put it there. This Gentile from Antioch, I'll just call him a Chekhov's Gentile. Moving on. Now, with the apostles and the deacons, the word of God spreads and a large number of priests comes to believe in Jesus. Everything is going great. Until the day that the deacon Stephen goes to the synagogue. There, he performs signs and wonders, and he preaches forgiveness of sins to anyone who will listen. But those who are listening don't want to hear it. They get angry, and a few angry people turns into a mob. The mob seizes Stephen and throws him in front of the high priest, saying, This man is blaspheming Moses and God. The high priest looks at Stephen and says, Is what they say true? Stephen, in boldness, gives a sermon, not unlike the one that Peter gave on the day of Pentecost. But this time, 3,000 don't get converted. The crowd becomes enraged and drags Stephen outside of the city and stones him. Stephen's last words sound a lot like Jesus's. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen is the first Christian to die for his faith, the first martyr. One of the men leading the execution is a young man named Saul. He's intelligent, ambitious, zealous, well-respected, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He fully approved of the execution. In fact, the execution inspires Saul. He begins going house to house, arresting people like Stephen, dragging men and women from their homes and throwing them into prison for their faith. Today, we would call Saul a terrorist. The message of Christ has spread throughout Jerusalem. The curtain falls. End of Act 1. Act 2. Witnesses in Judea and Samaria. The scene opens with the deacon Philip in Samaria. Now, he hasn't run for his life from Saul. He's going to a disliked people group, the Samaritans. Now, you may remember the Samaritans from the Gospels, that they were so disliked that a Jew wouldn't even talk to one. But Philip isn't concerned about that. He goes out to their towns and preaches about Jesus. Many believe and are baptized. Peter and John hear about Philip's ministry and go out to see it. When they see that many believe, they pray that the Holy Spirit would be given to the Samaritans, and God does it. And so Peter and John begin preaching in every Samaritan village they come to, and Philip heads west and preaches in the towns all along the coast. He even baptizes a royal Ethiopian eunuch. The message of Christ is on the move. Now Saul notices that the message of Jesus is going beyond Jerusalem. So he broadens his web of persecution. He's no longer satisfied with just throwing people into prison. He is now breathing threats of murder. He wants to kill Christians. As Saul hunts Christians along the road to Damascus, a miraculous thing happens. Jesus himself shows up 
knocks Saul off of his donkey and blinds him. Saul, why are you persecuting me? says Jesus. Who are you? asks Saul. I am Jesus whom you have persecuted. Go to Damascus and wait there. So Saul goes to Damascus, blinded, not knowing what comes next. God tells a disciple in Damascus named Ananias to go and minister to Saul. Now, imagine that you're Ananias here. God comes to you and says, hey, you know the guy that's trying to kill you? The person who, if you met, would throw you into prison or just stab you? You need to go talk to them about me. What would you do? Well, obviously you'd be terrified, so was Ananias. But he goes, and he says, Brother Saul, God has sent me to you so that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fall out of Saul's eyes, and he believes. God changes the heart of enemy number one. Saul spends the next few days with the disciples learning about Jesus. And soon, no one can stop him from proclaiming Christ is Lord to everyone he meets. Those who were once Saul's allies now are seeking to kill him. So he runs and hides in Jerusalem. They also get angry, so the church sends Saul to Tarsus, the southeast corner of Turkey, to hide from the people who are trying to kill him. While Saul is being sent away, Peter is doing ministry along the coast in a town named Joppa. One day, three messengers show up and say, Come with us. An angel said that you're supposed to meet our boss, the Roman centurion Cornelius. So Peter goes with them and finds the Roman centurion a wreck. He's described as a man who fears God, someone well-respected throughout the land. And he says, I was praying and God told me that you have a message from him for me. Peter, what is the message? Peter suddenly realizes what Jesus meant by go to all nations. He says, now I truly understand that God does not show favoritism in dealing with people. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is welcomed before God. He preaches Christ to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit comes upon the entire Roman household. They speak in tongues, real languages they did not know before in praise of God, just like the apostles did when they first received the Holy Spirit. It confirmed that God works the same way in Gentiles that he does in the Jews. Peter goes back to Jerusalem rejoicing and tells the church everything that he has seen. God grants repentance to everyone. If he grants repentance to Romans in Judea, he could grant repentance to Romans in Rome or Turkey or North Africa or anywhere. Guys, this is going all over the world. And then the church in Jerusalem remembers, hey, some believers fled to Antioch. You know where Nicholas the deacon is from, Chekhov's Gentile? What if we send a disciple up there to help build the church in Syria? And so Chekhov's gun goes off. They send Barnabas, a guy whose name literally means the son of encouragement, to build the church in Antioch. The message of Christ, which blossomed in the heart of Jerusalem, has now spread throughout all of Judea and Samaria. Act number three. 
to the farthest parts of the earth. Barnabas does a weird thing. Instead of stopping in Antioch, he speeds right through and goes 150 miles past it to Tarsus. Why? Because there's a gifted evangelist that speaks Greek, knows the Old Testament, and is passionate about Jesus who's hiding there. Saul. Barnabas brings Saul with him to Antioch, and for a year they minister to the church there. It's here that the followers of Christ first start to be called Christians. During that year, everything goes great in Antioch, but things go from bad to worse in Jerusalem. Herod, the nasty king, begins to persecute the church. He arrests the apostle James, John's brother, and beheads him. Peter is imprisoned, escapes by the power of God, and then goes into hiding. And just to make things worse, there's a famine. Quick aside, if you think that the early church never struggled with the problem of pain and suffering, you're out of your mind. That's not a modern problem. But they, the people who knew Jesus, dealt with it a lot different than we do. Acts cuts back to the church at Antioch. The leadership of the church is a cosmopolitan mix of people from all over the Mediterranean. There's Simon called Niger, who we believe was a dark-skinned African, Lucius of Cyrene, a man from modern-day Libya, and Menaean, a childhood friend of Herod's, which is pretty incredible. God tells this leadership to set apart Barnabas and Saul for a specific work, for going out to the Gentiles. So they pray for Saul and send him out on his first missionary journey with Barnabas and a young man named John Mark. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark travel to Cyprus, an immense island in the middle of the Mediterranean, and then they head up into eastern Turkey, preaching in synagogues and starting churches. Paul is beaten, imprisoned, stoned, and left for dead. John Mark, for reasons we aren't really sure of, abandons Barnabas and Paul. He just runs away. On this trip, Saul changes his name. Saul is a Hebrew name. It was the name of the first king of Israel. It's this really strong, powerful name. He changes it to a Roman name. Paul, which means little. At the end of this journey, Paul returns to Jerusalem, and he finds the greatest controversy in the early church. You see, the Jerusalem church has been teaching Gentiles that they have to become Jews before they can become Christians, that they have to be circumcised and live according to the Jewish ceremonial laws. Paul recounts this in Galatians. He says, We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that no one is justified by the work of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of God, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do not set aside God's grace, because if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul calls out the Jewish Christians, the leaders. He calls out Peter, the apostle, and by God's grace, they all repent. This shows that even apostles can be in error. There are no demigods in the church. This is the last time we hear from Peter. 
none of the twelve disciples are mentioned again. Paul continues his journey with Barnabas, leaving Jerusalem and returning to Antioch to tell them about his journey. Then, after a little bit of time, thinks, we should go back and see those churches that we planted. And so they start to get ready to head back out on the road, but Barnabas wants to bring John Mark. Paul doesn't like that idea. John Mark abandoned them. He's disqualified himself from ministry. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, believes in second chances. What a great guy. Barnabas and Paul can't agree, so they split up the journey. Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus, and Paul heads through Turkey to the Aegean Sea with Silas. This is when Paul goes into Greece and starts churches in the places he later writes epistles to. He goes to Philippi, where he's beaten and imprisoned, Thessalonica, Derby and Lystra, where Paul meets an impressive young man named Timothy. Berea, where the people are praised because they check Paul's words against the scriptures to make sure they're true. Paul goes to Athens, where he gives his famous sermon on Mars Hill. And he goes to Ephesus, an epicenter of the future church. He eventually returns back to Antioch and then immediately heads back out on the road to Syria and Greece to revisit all these places. It's during this third journey, this last tour, that Paul sets his sights on Rome. But it's also when Paul starts believing that his time could be at an end. While in Ephesus, he says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I don't consider my life as any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. In Jerusalem, Paul does what he always has. He goes to the synagogue and preaches. The Jews in the temple become enraged, so much so that they start beating him and seal the door so that no one can get in to save him. Roman guards have to break in the door and arrest Paul to save his life. The entire city devolves into chaos. This is the man who betrayed them, who actively started building the church he once wanted to destroy. The Roman commander in Jerusalem can't find anything wrong with Paul, but the city is going mad, about to fall into revolution, and people are constantly trying to kill Paul. So the commander sends Paul to the governor, Felix. And get this, in order to get Paul to Caesarea safely, to make sure that Paul is not killed on his journey, the Roman commander gives him an escort of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. In Caesarea, Felix can't find anything wrong with Paul, but Paul's a Roman citizen. He has a right to protection and a fair trial. So Felix keeps him under house arrest, free to meet with whomever he wishes, but not free to go wherever he wishes. Paul gets antsy. He wants to go to Rome. But wait, as a citizen, Paul has rights. He has a right to appeal his case to Caesar in Rome. So Paul takes advantage of his legal standing, appeals his case to Caesar, and gets put on a ship to Rome. More bad news. A huge storm sweeps his ship into a reef, and Paul narrowly survives by swimming to shore. 
he starts a fire on the shore where he is promptly bitten by a snake. Bad day. Three months after leaving Judea, Paul finally makes it to Rome, where he lives under house arrest. The book of Acts ends this way. Paul lived there two whole years in his own rented quarters and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with complete boldness and without restriction. Acts doesn't tell us how Paul's life ends, but we get a picture in 2 Timothy. Paul, writing to Timothy, Please come soon. Luke is the only one with me. And bring John Mark. He's a great help to me in ministry. Paul's story ends with preparing the next generation, making a record of the early church with Luke, and by forgiving and giving grace to someone he had once written off. We don't know exactly how Paul died, or the rest of the apostles for that matter. Tradition holds that Paul was beheaded after the great fire in Rome. Tradition says that Peter was crucified. It says that Peter's brother Andrew took the gospel to the Black Sea around modern-day Romania and Ukraine. It says that Philip went to North Africa, that Matthew went to Ethiopia and Persia, that Bartholomew went to South Arabia, that Thomas went as far east as India, that Simon the Zealot went to Persia, and that James, son of Alphaeus, ministered in Syria. The only one of the disciples to die of old age was John, who was exiled to the island of Patmos. The rest of them were martyred. The book of Acts shows us that these heroes of the faith were just like us. These were normal men with normal jobs who encountered the God and were sent out to do incredible things. They were people who gave away what they had been given. They taught everyone what Christ had taught them according to the scriptures. They loved people because God had loved them. They went to the ends of the earth and handed their ministry away to other people who did the same thing. And those people taught others and gave their ministry away to other younger leaders all the way until today when we are being taught and loved by an older generation who is now handing us ministry who is reminding us of Jesus's great commission to go and make disciples of all nations to baptize them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey every command that Jesus gave Like the apostles, we wait and pray until God gives us direction, and then we act without hesitation or fear. Because this message, the gospel, is going to the ends of the earth. Let everyone know that Jesus Christ, who was crucified, is Lord. This has been a production of Fathom Magazine. To find out more, visit fathommag.com.